Well, let's open our Bibles together this morning to begin with to the book of Psalms, Psalm 119. Psalm 119. We're going to be concluding a study we began a couple weeks ago on how God speaks. And the premise that we're exploring is this. God is still speaking today, but He is speaking to us through the pages of Scripture. Not through our own ideas, our own impulses, our own experiences, or our own intuitions. But through His Word, through the Scripture, God speaks to us today. And we have explored the sufficiency of Scripture. It's enough. We've explored the supremacy of Scripture. It is the greatest. And today we're going to consider the certainty of Scripture. That Scripture is absolutely true. Psalm 119, verse 160. Thy word is true from the beginning. And every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Thy word is true from the beginning. Heavenly Father, as we look into your holy word right now, I pray that you would help us to have a clear understanding of it. Help us to be sensitive to how the Holy Spirit is teaching us and leading us through the pages of Scripture, to know you better, and to change us to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for giving us your holy word. Thank you that you inspired and preserved it for us so that we might read for ourselves your communication, your letter to man. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible would not be sufficient. And, if it, and it would not be supreme if it were not absolutely true. If there were any legitimate doubt as to the accuracy or the reliability of Scripture, then we could never be sure that what we read in the pages of the Bible is indeed the Word of God and is indeed, therefore, all that we need. And so it's extremely important that we know and we believe the truth that God says about His own Word that it is absolutely true. The Bible does not merely contain truth, as some people would say, that you can find truth in the Bible. No, it's more than that. Everything the Bible says is absolutely true. From the big ideas about God right down to the smallest detail of historical events, the Bible is without error and is incapable of error. Now, the implications of, these truth, of this truth is huge in our lives because Everything the Bible says is true. There is no other book in the world that we should devote as much time and attention to as Scripture, as the Word of God. We should read it. We should study it. We should memorize it. We should meditate on it, not just so we can fill our head with facts, but so that we can live how God wants us to live 
and so that we can know God as God wants us to know Him. There is no other way to know God better than through the pages of Scripture. The Bible must be our guide for life. Not our thoughts, not the writings and ideas of man, but the Word of God. We need to seek to know God better through the pages of Scripture because it is in the Bible that God speaks to us. Now today I would like to take some time to look at several passages of Scripture that have significant bearing on the idea of the certainty of Scripture. Because hopefully we will come away from this time this morning firm in our conviction that God's Word is absolutely true and that we will not allow Satan to put a question mark in our mind about the Word of God. So turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter number 3. The psalm we just read said that God's Word is true from the beginning. And as we've noted already in, in the last couple weeks, when we go back to the book of Genesis, we find that the Word of God is present almost immediately. Because the very first thing that God did in creating the world, it says, and God said, let there be light. And from the beginning, every word that God has ever spoken has been true. And the word that was inspired and preserved for us today is therefore absolutely true because it is indeed the word of God. But in Genesis chapter 3, we find the account of man's fall into sin. When Satan tempted man to break the one rule that God gave. And what I want you to notice is how Satan did that. Genesis chapter number 3. We'll begin reading in the very first verse there. Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman... Yea, hath God said. The very first words in Scripture recorded out of the mouth of Satan was to question what God said. Yea, hath God said. Did God really say this? Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Satan came and speaking to Eve said, Hasn't God said you could eat any of the trees? Isn't that what God told you you could do? And she, verse number 2, responded by saying, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Verse 3, But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. I want you to notice with me, first of all, Satan's attack on the certainty of Scripture. Satan's attack on the certainty of Scripture. When Satan came to tempt Adam and Eve in the garden, he did so by attacking the certainty of what God had said. 
He began with the question, Yea, hath God said? And in so doing, he was endeavoring to plant a doubt in Eve's mind. A doubt about the word of God. She responded by saying, well, no, God didn't say we could eat of every tree. There's the one tree God said we can't eat of it. And notice in Satan's next, next words, he contradicted the word of God. He said, ye shall not surely die. Notice what Satan questioned about God's word. Number one, he questioned the accuracy of God's word. That is the truthfulness of it. He questioned whether or not, and really he contradicted whether what God said was actually true. God said in Genesis 2 verse 17 that man was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord said, for in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Satan said, ye shall not surely die. So he attacked the word of God, first of all, by contradicting and questioning the accuracy, that is the truthfulness of God's word. Was what God said actually true? But he didn't stop there. Notice that in verse number 5, he went on to question the motivation of God's word. He said, because God knows that in the day you eat thereof, you will be like God's knowing good and evil. And implied in that was that God had told Adam and Eve not to eat that tree because God was holding something back from them, something good, something desirable, something that they really wanted. And so he questioned God's motives here. He challenged the reason that God gave that word. And that was the form that the original temptation took. Of course, it involved a particular fruit that appealed to the natural appetites. And of course, he also appealed to the desire to be wise. And, and he, he appealed to all of those that were once God-given and good cravings that we have. He appealed to those and tempted Eve to fulfill those desires in a way that God did not authorize. And that's how sin came in. But he did so by questioning the Word of God. Think of it this way. If Adam and Eve had decided, you know what? We're just going to go with what God says. God said, don't eat it because in the day you eat thereof, you'll die. We'll just stick with that. If they had done that, then they would not have sinned. Satan knows that the Bible, the Word of God, is the antidote for sin. And so he works hard to undermine the Scripture to draw people away from God. What we need to understand is that doubting the reliability of Scripture is an attack on the character of God. To put a question mark on the scripture, is this really true? Did God really say that? Is that what God really meant? Is that really why God meant it? All of those are attacks on the character of God himself. 
Remember we saw last week the verse that said that God has exalted His Word above His name. There's an inseparable link between the reliability of Scripture and the character of God. And if you attack the Bible and if you attack the Word of God, you are attacking the character of God. That's what Satan was doing. In essence saying, well, the only reason God told you that is because He doesn't really want good things for you. That was the nature of his tack. And so, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 3, that when the woman, verse 6, saw that the tree was good for food, it was pleasant to the eyes, a tree desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Now understand, that Eve was deceived, but Adam knew full well that what he was doing was wrong, and he did it anyway. Eve knew it was wrong, but she allowed herself to be deceived. Adam willfully broke God's command, eyes wide open. And so verse 7 says, The eyes of them both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed themselves fig leaves together and made themselves apron. Man sinned. Because he did not believe and obey God's word. Psalm 119 verse 9. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word. With my whole heart have I sought thee. O let me not wander from thy commandments. God's word prevents man from sinning when man believes it and obeys it. And so Satan's attack on man began with an attack on the certainty of Scripture. And this was just the beginning. That attack has continued to this very day. He continues to attack the Bible. You know, I, I think sometimes we, we, we discount this fact. We think about Satan's attack on the truth and we think about his attacks on, uh, on the gospel as... I think sometimes it's being more generic. Like just by leading people not to believe the, uh, uh, the gospel and leading people to believe other things, when actually there is a very specific aim of Satan in some of his attacks, and that is to attack the certainty and the reliability of Scripture. And unfortunately, he's been very successful in that. There are well-known preachers today who have fallen victim, who will stand in front of people and will say things like, you know, when you're trying to convince people about, uh, about Jesus, don't use the Bible. Don't use the Bible. Because people don't believe the Bible anyway. Folks, that's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. Because if people will not believe the Scripture, they will not believe any other way. I'm reminded of the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man and Lazarus, they both died. The rich man went to hell. Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom. And the rich man being in torments and the conversation that he had with Abraham, he asked that Abraham would send Lazarus back to tell his brothers that hell was real so they wouldn't face the same fate. 
And, Moses, and Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. That is, they have the Old Testament scripture. Let them hear them. And the rich man protested, no, but if one would come back from the dead, they would listen to them. And, and Abraham said to him, if they will not hear Moses and the prophets, if they will not hear the scripture, they will not believe that one should rise from the dead. And so Satan works hard to undermine the credibility of the Bible. Why? Because number one, he knows that the word is truth. John 17, 11, Jesus said, Sanctify them in thy truth. Thy word is truth. He's worked hard to get people to believe for ages and ages and ages that there's no such thing as truth. Why is relativism such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal that so many people think that, you know, whatever is true to you, that's your truth, but I can have my truth and, and anybody else can have their truth. This whole relativistic mindset, why is that such a big deal? Because it's an attack on the certainty of Scripture. Because the moment that you say the Bible is the Word of God, you have said there is an absolute standard by which man will be judged. And man can't handle that. Sinful man, lost man doesn't want that. And so they reject the idea of absolute truth altogether. Even Pilate, when he was standing before the Lord Jesus Christ, who said, I am the way, the truth, the life. Pilate said to Jesus, what is truth? What is truth? He knows that the Word of God is true. That's why he attacks it. Why does he attack the Bible so hard? Number two, because he knows that Scriptures testify of Jesus. Jesus told the Pharisees, Search the Scriptures, for in them you think that you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. The Bible, all of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, it all points to the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus was walking along the road to Emmaus with those two disciples who were talking about all the events of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection, He began to reveal to them from the pages of Scripture, starting all the way from the beginning and moving all the way through, revealing to them from the Old Testament all the things about Himself. Why? Because the Bible points to Jesus. That's why Satan hates the Scripture. That's why no other book in history has been so attacked as the Bible. Because it all points to Jesus. He knows that the Word is truth. He knows that it points to the Lord Jesus Christ. It testifies of Jesus. And number three, He knows that the Scripture leads to salvation. Romans chapter 10 verse 17, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. This is why... Many countries who are not, who, who, who are a majority of, say, like the many Muslim nations and, and other nations that are not, uh, do not have many Christians, many of them will ban the Bible. Why? Because Satan knows that the Scripture brings people not only pointing to Jesus, but to salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You understand this morning, when we talk about the certainty of Scripture, this is not some small, insignificant matter. We can't have an attitude, well, I believe it's pretty sure, but you know, someone else may have doubts, that's not a big deal. No, it is a huge deal. Now, in contrast to the certainty of Scripture, we have the character of Satan himself. Turn to the book of John, if you would. John chapter 8.
So in Genesis 2.17, God said, In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan said, You shall not surely die. Now we have to make a choice. Who are we going to believe? Because we can't believe both. That's irrational. Because those are contradictory statements. Either you will die or you won't, which is true. We have to choose. Are we going to believe God or not? And that's what it boils down to, believe God or not. Whether you're believing Satan, whether you're believing man, whether you're believing yourself, if you're not believing God, that's the problem. Notice what Jesus said about the character of Satan in John chapter 8, verse number 44. John chapter 8. Actually, let's look at verse 43. Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? Now, he wasn't saying they were deaf and unable to hear, but they weren't listening. They weren't listening to what Jesus said with an open heart, willing to believe it. He said, you, you won't hear my word. That's why you don't understand. You're not listening with an open heart, no, with a willingness to believe the truth. You're so set in your ways, you've convinced yourself that what you believe is true. You won't listen to anything else. And so he says in verse number 44, Ye are of your father the devil. Those are pretty harsh words. From our Savior to very religious men. He says, You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. That's the character of Satan. The character of a murderer and a liar. Do you begin to understand why he hates the Bible so much then? Because the Bible is truth. It's absolute truth. And until he can put a question mark in people's minds about the truth of the Bible, he is powerless to persuade them. He has to undermine the credibility of Scripture or his whole scheme doesn't work. You can't believe and obey the Bible and be sinning. If you're sinning, you're not believing and obeying the Bible in that. Now, if Satan works so hard to attack something, that must mean it's pretty important. Understand that the certainty of Scripture is of the utmost importance. In contrast to Satan, who is a liar by nature, we have God. God who is truth. God, Titus 1 and verse number 2 says, in hopes of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. God cannot lie. Satan cannot help but lie. But not only do we see Satan's attack on Scripture, notice man's arguments against Scripture. For this, look with me in 2 Peter chapter 3. For those of you who are coming on to our Wednesday night Bible study regularly, we've been studying through 2 Peter. Right now we're in chapter 2. Several weeks ago we covered the end of chapter 1, which talks about the inspiration of Scripture. And we're going to mention that again in a few minutes. But Lord willing, in some uh, weeks ahead, we're going to get to this part in Second Peter chapter 3. 
But here's a little preview for you. 2 Peter chapter 3, let's read verses 15 and 16. Follow along as I read aloud. And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things, of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures, unto their own destruction. Point out several things about these verses here. Notice, first of all, that Peter recognized Paul's writing to be inspired of God, to be holy scriptures. He lumped them in in the same category of the scriptures that he referred to in chapter 1 that were given in old time by holy men of God who spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So he, even then, as the New Testament was being written, was acknowledging the inspiration of God on the New Testament. Notice, secondly, and I like this, that Peter said about Paul's writing, there's some stuff in there that's hard to understand. I like that. Because there's been a lot of times I've read through the Bible and I think, that's hard to understand. I don't know what that means. So it gives me comfort to know that even one of the writers of the New Testament, a man who walked with Jesus, still had a hard time understanding Scripture. But what I want to point out for the sake of our message this morning is how Peter characterized what some people did to Scripture. He says in verse number 16 that they that are unlearned and unstable rest the Scripture. Notice that word in your Bible. It's W-R-E-S-T. And it means to twist or to distort. We get our English word wrestle. All right, That's the same idea here. You think about uh, Olympic wrestlers. What are they trying to do? They're trying to twist and distort the other fella till he gives up. That's what they're trying to do. And that's what some people do with Scripture. They twist it. And they, they try to make it mean something that it doesn't mean. And they argue against the certainty of Scripture in so doing. Now these attacks have always been around. But in more modern times, it was really the late 1800s that there was a huge surge in attacks on the certainty of Scripture within Christianity. Because there were a lot of people who came on the scene who thought they knew better and decided that they needed to fix the Word of God because it had gotten messed up. And they began this this whole movement that put a huge question mark on the certainty of Scripture. And thus, doctrines like the doctrine of inspiration fell under attack. The doctrine of inspiration is simply the fact that God breathed His Word that the Scriptures were given as the Word of God. They were not the thoughts of man that man put down and and said, well, I think this about God, and some other people came along and said, hey, that's good, we'll keep that around. And and thus, over a period of time, we kind of got this collection of stuff that people thought about God. That's not how we got Scripture. 2 Peter 3, 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. But because many, many years ago, some people said miracles, we don't believe in miracles anymore. we got to come up with a natural explanation for how we got the Bible. The doctrine of inspiration fell under attack. 
And listen, if you attack the doctrine of inspiration, you're attacking the certainty of Scripture. And as we've already seen, you're attacking the character of God Himself. Here in 2 Peter, go back to chapter number 1. Let's be reminded, what was Peter's view on the inspiration of Scripture? 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. There it is. The Bible was not given by the will of man, but rather it was by the will of God. Notice how he explains it. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. That's inspiration as the Holy Spirit... He he superintended the process of writing of these different portions of Scripture so that the very words that were written were the words of God. They have attacked the inspiration of Scripture. And with that is also the attack on the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture. If God is truly, if He has truly inspired His Word, then His Word has the same character and quality as God Himself. So if God is without error, then His Word must be without error. If God is incapable of making mistakes, then His Word must be incapable of making mistakes. So if you take away inspiration, you say, well, no, God didn't really give the Bible. Well, then the Bible is no longer inerrant. The Bible is no longer infallible. We have no idea whether anything in it is actually true. And we are left to our own devices to try and figure out for ourselves, is this right or is this wrong? There was the, have been attacks on the inspiration of Scripture. Man argues against the certainty of Scripture, number two, by denying the preservation of Scripture. Turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Verse number 89 says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. It's settled. The doctrine of preservation is this, that God not only inspired his word, but he has preserved it so that every generation has access to the pure words of God. That is an absolutely vital doctrine because without preservation, inspiration is meaningless. What good does it do you or I that God inspired His Word if we don't know where it is today? And a lot of well-meaning men have undermined the preservation of Scripture because they, they were convinced that that was the intelligent thing to do, but for whatever reason, they didn't understand or they disregarded the implications If you say that God inspired His Word, He went through all that trouble to make sure that what Peter wrote down on paper to send to the believers in the first century, that God made sure that every single one of those words was exactly the words that God intended so that it was His Word indeed. If God went through all that, why would He just say, all right, from now on I'm just going to, it's just going to have to be up to man to figure out where this is. The doctrine of preservation is is found throughout all of Scripture. Jesus said, The heaven and earth will pass away, but one jot or one tittle of the law shall in no wise pass away till all be fulfilled. God has promised to preserve His Word. The promise of preservation is one that we can't let go of because without it, we cannot have certainty. 
about the Scripture. One of the reasons that by conviction we use the Bible that we use here at Philadelphia Baptist Church, which we use the King James Version, one of the reasons we use that is this very doctrine. Because many modern versions today remove whole portions of Scripture because the people who have done the translating and the editing said those portions shouldn't really be there. One of the most popular versions today uh, came out about 20 years ago. Uh, been through several revisions since then, but it's the ESV. And I don't know if anybody in here is carrying one today. It doesn't really matter. But you do need to know this, regardless, that that, along with many modern versions, deletes dozens and dozens and dozens of verses and hundreds and hundreds of words that are just removed. Look, I, I'm not mad this morning, but I'm just going to tell you very plainly, I want a Bible with all the words in it. That's just where I am. Because the preservation of Scripture is important to me. I don't want to be reading in Acts chapter 8 and read verse 36 and then verse 38 because somebody took verse 37 out because they said, well, that one shouldn't really be there. I don't want to get to the end of the book of Mark and find the last eight verses of Mark chapter 16 all in italics with a footnote at the bottom that says these verses aren't in the oldest and best manuscripts. I don't want that. Because those are question marks on the Bible. Man argues against the certainty of Scripture by denying inspiration, by denying preservation. And number three, man argues against the certainty of Scripture by distorted interpretations. By distorted interpretations. Back in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse number 20, we're told that the Scripture is not of any private interpretation. What does that mean? Well, it means you and I don't get to pick what the Bible means. That when God inspired Scripture, He had a specific meaning in mind and He communicated that meaning in a specific way with specific words. We don't get to come to the Bible and say, well, God said this, but what do I think that means? We don't get to do that. We come to the Bible and we say, God said this, what does God mean when He says this? We have a responsibility of interpreting Scriptures correctly. Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, if Paul said, Timothy, when you go to Scripture, and when you study it, and when you separate it out to understand it, make sure that you do that rightly. If he told him to do it rightly, then that implies you can do it wrongly. I don't even know if that's good grammar. Wrongly urist? I don't know. There's a bad way to do it. <laughs> and there's a good way. And there are many people who come to Scripture and they do not rightly divide it. Instead, they rest it. They twist it. They distort it. Well, I think it means this to me. Well, you know, I heard somebody say this. Or, you know, I, I think this. Instead of allowing God to tell us what He meant. One of the best, best things that we must remember when it comes to interpreting Scripture is let the Bible define itself. 
let Scripture be its own best explanation. Because you will find that there are so much confusion about what the Bible says can be cleared up if you will just compare Scripture with Scripture. If you will just not take this one thing and out of context and say, well, it says this. It's like the, like the old joke. The man was looking for a direction from God. And so he just decided he was going to open the Bible, put his finger down, and whatever he saw there, that's what he was going to do. And so he opened the Bible and he put his finger down, and it was a passage where it says that Jude went out and hung himself. He thought, well, that's not going that's not gonna work. I gotta try this again. And so he opened the Bible, he put his finger down, and, and the verse said, Go and do thou likewise. That's not how it works. We have to understand Scripture as God gave it. How did God give it? Isaiah summarized it this way: line upon line, precept upon precept. God gave his word systematically. Progressive revelation. He didn't give it all at once. He gave it over the course of about 1,600 years. 40 different human authors. He gave it systematically. And that's the way that we should learn God's Word. That's the way that we should interpret God's Word. Is to go back and let God define His own terms. Let the Bible explain itself. Now there are many helpful tools that we can use like commentaries and dictionaries and lexicons and all of these different things and they can be helpful but they can never supersede the scripture itself. Let God define his own word. Many people twist and distort Scripture to fit their own preconceived notions. Well, I think this, and they'll go to the Bible and they'll, they'll take passages and they'll try to weave them together. They end up doing some serious theological gymnastics to try and prove their point. When if they would just let the Bible speak for itself, things would be so much clearer. Still other people read their mystical ideas into Scripture. And they see all of Scripture as just a kind of a story that illustrates. It's more of an allegory than absolute truth. And so when you take that view of Scripture, man, it can mean whatever you want it to mean. And the result is there's no certainty there. Now there are places in Scripture that there are obviously parables and there are allegories and there are certain illustrations that are used. But when you understand the Bible in its literal grammatical way, it actually makes a lot of sense. Sometimes it's hard work to get that sense figured out, like Peter said. But it actually does make sense when you follow scriptural instruction. Mysticism is an attack on the certainty of Scripture because it elevates man's experience and man's feeling over the absolute truth of the Bible. I don't want to re-preach and teach what we went over several weeks ago in 2 Peter chapter 1, but remember there that in verses 16 through 19, Peter was talking about his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. He said, I was there. When the Lord Jesus Christ received uh, honor and power, when God said, This is my beloved Son, hear ye Him. He was there. He saw. He was an eyewitness of the majesty of Jesus. But He said in verse number 19, But we have a more sure word of prophecy. The Bible that we hold in our hands is more certain than any idea, any feeling, any emotion, or any experience that we will ever have. Instead of saying, well, I know what the Bible says, but 
let me tell you what I've experienced. We need to say, I know what I've experienced, but let me tell you what the Bible says. The Word of God is absolutely certain. Now turn with me to Psalm 19 as we close. We've seen Satan's attack on the certainty of Scripture. We've seen man's arguments against the certainty of Scripture. I want us to close, and I will confess, I do not have time to do this justice, but just to close by putting a definite punctuation mark on this, let's look at God's assurance of the certainty of Scripture. Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11 are verses of Scripture that have always been very important to me since the first grade. And I know it's been since the first grade because it was in the first grade that I learned a song based on these verses. If I remember correctly, my first grade teacher's name was Mrs. McGuire. Do you remember? She doesn't. My mom doesn't remember. So if I don't remember, I'm okay. But she taught us this song that was based on these verses. Verse number 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Notice how God assures us of the certainty of His Word. He describes it beginning in verse number 7 as perfect. It's perfect. If something's perfect, you can't improve on it. He also says in verse number 7, it's sure. It's sure. The, the word sure, such a simple word, but so powerful. If you're really sure about something, there's not any doubt. Somebody says, are you sure? Well, I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure. That's not good enough. Are you sure? Is there any doubt at all? Listen, you appreciate that. Or at least you would if you were ever on trial here in America. Because the jury is supposed to be able to convict someone beyond a reasonable doubt. The jury is supposed to be able to say, no, we're sure, based on all the evidence, that that person did it. And if you were innocent, you would appreciate the difference between sure and pretty sure. The Bible is sure. Verse number 8, the statutes of the Lord are right. Yeah, that's right. It's absolutely right. It lines up perfectly with the truth. In fact, it is the line by which the truth is measured. It is right. It's the standard. The commandment of the Lord is pure. I think of this, it's without contamination. It's amazing, not to gross you out, but it's amazing how much contamination we actually tolerate. You know the water we drink every single day, even if you're on purified city water? You know it's not actually 100% pure? 
If you ever get the little report from the city, we get them here at the church because the church is on city water. It'll tell you that the bacteria count was, you know, so many parts per million, and that's well below the threshold. And I'm thinking, any parts per million seems like too much to me. But, you know, we tolerate all kinds of contaminations, and thankfully God has created our bodies to be able to deal with those sort of things. But the Word of God doesn't even have one part per million contamination. It's pure. The fear of the Lord, and that's just another way of describing Scripture because it's through Scripture that we learn to have proper respect of God. It's clean. It's clean. Similar in idea to being pure, but there's no smudge. <laughs> there's no dirt. There's, there's, it's just exactly, totally right. It's clean, and the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Absolutely right. And so because of that, the Word of God is desirable. Verse number 10, more to be desired than gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. I love how God appeals to two of our most basic cravings. We want sufficient material resources and we want food. <laughs> and God says the Bible is even more desirable than that. And verse number 11 there's deliverance through the Word of God because by them the servant is warned and in keeping of them there's great reward. I told you that I, I don't have time to do it justice. But from beginning to end, you will read assurances in Scripture that God's Word is absolutely true. It is certain. What should be our takeaway? Well, number one, don't doubt it then. Don't doubt the Word of God. God says it, believe it. I remember when I was in Bible college, I guess it would have been probably first semester of my sophomore year because I was taking my first Greek class. And the Greek professor and I sometimes would have some back and forths because I was pretty firm in my beliefs and he knew I was wrong. <laughs> So we had some back and forths. And I remember, I remember distinctly having an exchange with him. And, and it's always stuck with me. And we were talking about something. And, and I said, whatever it was, and I don't even remember what it was. But I, would, I just couldn't, I, I, I was literally not understanding it. And I said to him, and I wasn't being disrespectful. It was an honest question. I said, how can I believe something I don't understand? And he said, how can you understand something you don't believe? And for me, that was a light bulb moment. It was like God just went, and I was like, oh, yeah, I need to go rethink my life. Because I had for so long operated from the standpoint of, well, I, I believe everything I understand. But this that I don't get, I'm not going to believe that yet. And what I was doing is I was making myself the standard of my faith. Because my faith was dependent on what I could understand. And once I realized that, it was just like, I don't know. It's like all the lights started coming on. Whereas before I could see this much. It was like things just started like, okay, I'm just going to get back to the simple place where if God says it, I'm going to believe it. And if I don't know, if I can't figure it out now, I'll just trust that that day may come later. I don't know. 
Believe it. Don't doubt it. You're, there's going to be times in your life where you're going to see something in Scripture or you're going to go through something in life and you're going to be tempted to doubt what God says. Decide right now, I'm just going to believe it. I'm just going to believe it, even if I don't understand it. And I trust that God will give me greater understanding as I grow. Don't doubt the Word of God. Number two, don't neglect the Word of God. If the Bible is supreme, and it is, if the Bible is sufficient, and it is, and if the Bible is certain, and it absolutely is, then it ought to be important to us. It ought to be important in us for us to read the Bible on a regular basis. I advocate for a daily basis. Not just to check it off and say, I did my Bible reading, but to actually learn what the Bible says. Whatever, however you have to do that, whatever system that you need to use. And look, this, this is all free right now, okay? But I, I just tell you for myself personally, here's the system that works best for me in my daily Bible reading to actually get the most out of it, all right? I have a schedule that I go by, all right? We have schedules that are printed in the bulletin. You can use those. If you don't have a schedule, that schedule is way better than the schedule you don't have, okay? I use a schedule. I use a physical copy of the Bible, and I try to use the same one, this one right here, as much as I can. I, don't all, I can't always do that. Sometimes I use a device, but as much as I can, I want a physical copy. You know why? I've never once gotten a text alert from this. All right? It just it minimizes distractions. And here's another thing. This is what works for me. I have a pencil in my hand. I have a pencil in my hand. What do I do with that? A couple of things. Number one, sometimes if I'm nodding off, Yes, I do that. It's like, oh, you're a preacher. Yeah, well, I'm also human. Okay? So I have, I have a pencil in my hand because sometimes it helps me focus on the words. I like literally follow down with the pencil along the line of the words. But I use a pencil and not just a stick because I want to mark things. And so you'll see if you flip through my Bible, um, you, you'll see that I have markings on a lot of pages. And most of those are not sermon notes. Most of those are things that I've marked privately in my Bible reading. But I want to see something. I want to circle it. I want to underline it. My, my wife bought me this Bible years ago, and it's got wide margins all the way around. It gives me plenty of, plenty of room to scribble, okay? And so I'll write little notes in here. Why am I doing that? Because I want to be as engaged in po as possible in Scripture. Because the Bible is too important to neglect it. Now, if that way doesn't work for you, fine. Whatever way works for you. But get in the Word of God. Don't neglect it. The Lord told Joshua, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. So is God still speaking today? Absolutely. Through the pages of Scripture. But the question is, are you listening? With heads bowed and eyes closed, I make no excuses for it. I love the Word of God. I really do. I don't know it as well as I wish I did. I don't obey it as much as I wish I would. But I love Scripture. Because I think it's just amazing that God would stoop so low as to put in writing his wishes and his desires and his will for me.
I'm so glad he did that. I can tell you right now, there's no way I could figure it out unless God had decided, you know what, I'll put it in writing form. God does speak, and he's doing it through the pages of Scripture. But I want to ask you this morning, can you honestly say that you're listening? And I want to go back to the very beginning of what the Word does. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. The very first thing that Scripture says to us is that you're a sinner, you need a Savior, and Jesus Christ is that Savior. He died, was buried, and rose again so that you could be saved. Then if you will place your faith in Him, you will be rescued from an eternal damnation in hell and be given eternal life. Faith cometh by hearing, and the hearing by the Word of God. Have you listened? Has there been a point in your life where you responded to the message of the gospel and placed your faith in the Lord Jesus? With heads bowed and eyes closed, if you can say that with certainty this morning, that you know for sure there's been a point in your life where you trusted Jesus as your Savior, would you raise your hand in testimony to that? All over the room. Praise the Lord for that. Thank you so much. You may put your hands down. I think most every hand was raised, but I might have missed someone. So let me ask the opposite question. Has there never been a point in your life where you trusted Jesus as your Savior? The whole reason, one of them, that God gave us the Bible was to show us that. But maybe you've never truly listened to God speaking. And if that's you, would you at least let me pray for you? I won't embarrass you. I won't call you out by name or anything like that. But if you have never trusted Christ as your Savior, would you let me pray for you by simply raising your hand right now, saying, I don't know for sure that I'm saved. I've never done that. Is there anybody like that? Anybody at all? Then Christians, let me, let me wrap it up this way. You all know what it is to talk to someone and them not listen. You know how bad that makes you feel. When you know you have something important to say, and when it's someone you love, and you're not saying it just to hear your own voice, you want them to know these things. Well, that's what God is doing in the pages of Scripture. He's trying to tell you what you need to know. But maybe you've been ignoring Him. Maybe you haven't been listening. Has God convicted you about that today? If that's so, then I want to invite you during this time of invitation to get it right with God, to go to God in prayer and confess that you have not been listening. Would you commit to God today to pay better attention to His Word?